Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 3, Episode 30 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. So I was sent on this management course, and uh, a very helpful person had laid out a table full of management-type self-help books. All the popular titles were there. So I had a look at them, and of course I'm in kind of full-on cynicism mode by this point. And I'm sitting there, no longer listening to what they're talking about, thinking, these are rubbish. I could write one of those. I could write one of those. I'm going to write one of those. You know, as I'm exercising cynicism to show how easy it is, what the hell? I'm going to do that. Maybe as a parting shot to this rubbish job. It wasn't a rubbish job, but that's how it felt that day. I'm sitting there doing the thing, yeah, what would it be about? Well, you'd need a unique selling point, wouldn't you? Yeah, what's my unique selling point? Okay, so what if it is, what do we learn from end-of-life care, which is something I do that freaks a lot of people out, what can we learn from end-of-life care that would help you with business problems? Yeah, I bet that'd sell, wouldn't it? So, you know, in all my cynicism, yeah, 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 I'm going to do that. And then, of course, you think, you know what, that's not actually a bad idea. As long as it's not just business problems, because there is stuff that we routinely do with people who are having to face some of the very worst things in their life, including the end of their life, and the impact on themselves and others around them, that actually also you can read across to other big, difficult, upcoming stuff. Divorce, redundancy, legal action, endings of things. don't have to be death, but the stuff that we routinely work with with people around this that you can read across. P-Supers, thanks for tuning in. This week, it's part one of my chat with clinical psychologist and fabulous human Dr. Ray Owen. You've just heard Ray talking about the events that led up to him writing his first book, Facing the Storm. We cover loads more in our chat. You'll hear a bit about Ray's career, a story which he holds lightly, his books, his work in long-term health conditions and palliative care, and this includes how he discovered ACT and contextual behavioural science. And to finish off this episode, he chooses a song, which is not only a belter, it also has an important message for us all. People Soup is a community of people who are interested in behavioural science at work and how we can make it accessible, fun and useful for ourselves and each other. At work, behavioural science has the capacity to enhance our well-being, help us be the person we want to be more often and provide us with perspectives to enable cooperation, collaboration and innovation. It was psychologist Abraham Maslow who said, A first-rate soup is more creative than a second-rate painting. That was the inspiration for this podcast. More than ever, the world of work is a heady mix of people, behaviour, events and challenges. When the blend is right, it can be first-rate. Behavioural science and psychology has a lot to offer in terms of recipes, ingredients, seasoning, spices and utensils. So welcome to People's Soup where we aim to nourish the mind and flourish at work. Let's go on to news and reviews, P-Supers. Reviews are in for our last episode, part two of my conversation with Dr. Shane McLaughlin. On LinkedIn, Michaela Nikolova said, Dr. McLaughlin truly is a role model, the exact type of person we should cherish and support, the ones who strive to make a difference and explore new topics. I couldn't agree more. Over on the old Facebook, Dr. Sarah O'Connor-Cassidy said, I listened to this properly today as my listening was interrupted last night by various small children, brackets my own, and yoga practice. Shane, I'm delighted to hear about all the independent verification that you've been doing. Actually, we couldn't have hoped for a better independent verifier than a sceptic such as your good self. Your work is phenomenal, and obviously I'm a huge fan of the extraordinary Dr. Ian Tyndall and Dr. Ian Stewart too. 
but you've truly made this your own and I can't wait to hear about the future directions that you take with this, as well as the other fantastic projects you mention here on ACT. For me, this feels quite similar to one of your babies going off to college by themselves and doing well. The smart training has always felt like another child to me because so many years were invested into demonstrating that it could work. But of course, there's always the chance that it might not. And you've really pushed out the boat and tested out all the variables and shown, again and again, that this is a good, solid, working intervention. This is what a good scientist must do, test all the things. Yes, like you, I always acknowledge that there's a lot still to be done, but honestly, your work is so well thought out and your knowledge base is extraordinary. You've really done your homework. If this is what it means to be a card-carrying fool, then we'll all be looking for such a card. And I love your line that everyone is a tacit behaviourist. Brilliant. But I'm afraid you guys are going to have to apologise to Peace Supers again, because there is an Aldi in Trim. Thanks for that, Sarah. And Sarah is one of the originators and founders of the Smart Training, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes again. So on the note of the Aldi in Trim, hopefully I can put the scandal of Trimaldigate to bed once and for all. I would like to offer my unreserved apology to Dr Shane McLaughlin, Dr Sarah Cassidy, and the population of Trim and the surrounding area for any confusion caused about the existence or non-existence of an Aldi in Trim. There is indeed an Aldi in Trim. It's on Jonathan Swift Street. And if that's not the street, please don't at me. That's what it says on Google. And now a message directly to Aldi. You haven't written, you haven't called. Please do get in touch to discuss that sponsorship deal. I think our values are aligned and I love your cycling wear and avocados. I could even think about designing a limited edition soup, along the lines of Stella McCartney designing for H&M. Right, news. I'm stoked. Yes, stoked, P-Supers, to announce a new training programme, bringing act and contextual behavioural science to the workplace for individuals, teams and leaders. This is a joint project with P-Super and a legend of organisational flexibility, Dr Annie Gascoigne. Doesn't everyone deserve some evidence-based behavioural science in their lives? This extravaganza of a programme is produced in collaboration with Contextual Consulting. Hi, Joe Oliver, and you can join me and our Annie for a free webinar to hear all about it on the 9th of July at 10am. So get registered for that. What have you got to gain? I'm toying with a hashtag for this project, hashtag McGazza, and there'll be a link in the show notes to have a look at the programme and sign up. Or you could go to contextualconsulting.co.uk. If you do enjoy the podcast, I'd love it if you would subscribe, rate and review it, whatever platform you're on. It helps us amplify our voice and reach more people with stuff that could be useful. For now, get a brew on and have a listen to part one of my conversation with Dr. Ray Owen, my fellow member of the Hair Bear Bunch. P-Supers, stand by for action. It's Dr. Ray Owen joining me here. Ray, welcome to People Soup. Thank you for asking me on, Ross. I've been looking forward to this. Well, I'm delighted you're willing to join us. It's a true honour. Now, you'll be familiar with my research department. Now, they've been having a bit of a go looking into your activities. That sounds a bit... <laughs> I didn't mean that to sound sinister. That's okay. I'm just dealing with the anxiety that's showing up. And I'm just going to sit here with it. They've been having, having a bit of a look about who is Dr. Ray Owen. So I'll present you with their findings. They're not always 100% accurate, I have to tell you. So, <laughs> so take everything with a pinch of salt and you can correct as we go along. Good. So 
Ray is a consultant clinical psychologist and health psychologist, and he's got over 20 years experience in physical health settings in the NHS and also outside of the NHS. He's a teacher, a supervisor, an author, and he works both within the NHS and on a freelance basis. In terms of qualification-y type things or accolades, he's a fellow of the Higher Education Academy and an accredited facilitator in the National Advanced Communication Skills Programme. Specifically for senior practitioners in cancer care, that is, yeah. Thank you. That's the important bit. Yeah. And you are also an Association of Contextual Behavioural Science peer-reviewed trainer. Right, so we're doing okay so far. Yeah, that's all good so far. It does sound kind of exhausting when I hear it all back, though. <laughs> doing all those things. Well, it's it's to your credit that you you've negotiated that through through your career to date. I mentioned author. I'm going to give a plug to your two books. Oh, thank you. Self help books published by Routledge. One is called Facing the Storm, 2011, and another Living with the Enemy, 2014. And I'll put links to both of those on the show notes for this episode. Thank you. And both of these books were shortlisted for the BMA Popular Medicine Book of the Year Award. So congratulations for that. Mm, Yeah, that was an unexpected event that I found myself sort of nominated for that. And I got to go along to a very sort of flash presentation thing at the BMA with canapes with twice. Yeah, got to sit there and watch other people win. It was great. (laughs) Oh man, you was robbed. (laughs) (laughs) But you did get canapes. There were canapes, so that's good. And in fairness, particularly on the second occasion, you didn't find out who else was nominated till you were there. I quickly got to the, the list of nominees in my category, and I went down them. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I saw uh, a book by it was uh, Danny Penman and Vidya Mala Birch, a great mindfulness writer and a co-founder of Breathworks Mindfulness. And I remember looking at that on the list and thinking you know what, if I was judging this, I'd give them the prize as well. So I'm just going to sit back and enjoy the canapes and not expect anything. And it worked well. Nice approach. Now, my research department found two top secret matters. I don't think I'll be damaging national security by revealing either of them. But if we are, well, they won't appear on the podcast. Fair play. It says here, you're chief psychologist for a global top secret organisation called the World Aquanaut Security Patrol. (laughs) I can neither confirm nor deny that. Understood. Moving on. In other news, it's not known to the general public, but you and me have full arrangements in place to act as stunt doubles for each other. Yes. This emergency protocol has never been enacted, but it's there and poised. It could be used for training, attendance at Strictly, come dancing events, or even... (laughs) personal dance floor experiences or appearances even and let's face it personal dance floor experiences are where the highest risk of unforeseen injury occurs so being able to dep in for each other highly useful as will be evidenced no doubt at a future acbs event i i very much hope so when we're all back in the same rooms again together indeed thanks ray could i ask you to talk a little bit about your career what's led you to where you are now and Maybe highlighting for us a couple of pivotal moments. Sure. Having heard previous P-Soup broadcasts, I I knew this might be a thing we'd be talking about. So I was having kind of a bit of a a, a think about the the story of how I got here. And I suppose the first thing to say, given we're talking about these ACT or psychological flexibility approaches, is, you know, any story has to be held really lightly. 
it's very easy to construct a this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and that's why I'm here doing this today. And that's only ever a story. I mean, it might be right, but it's only ever a story. I'm a great fan of the poem The Traveller by the Italian poet uh, DiMarchio, possibly. A, a poem that's actually quite often used at funerals now that has the line, Traveller, there is no path. The path is made by walking. The path is what you see looking back, the footsteps that led you here. Wow. I'm just holding up my arm to show Ray. I don't know if you can see that. Goosebumps. Uh -huh. Oh, goosebumps, right. Goosebumps. Yeah. That's quite powerful stuff, isn't it? I use it quite a bit in teaching. Mainly to make this point that, in retrospect, it looks clear how we ended up here. But actually, there really isn't a path. We're all heading out in the undergrowth and just trying to find our best way through and heading what seems roughly the right direction in the hope of getting somewhere we want to be. And I think that's as true of my career as it is about anything else. So that's the reason for that particular diversion. So this is a story. And I think it's probably largely right. Let's hold it lightly. Okay, so the first bit is why psychology at all. At secondary school, the only things I was really good at were things like English and creative writing. And... I knew I didn't want to be a teacher. I knew you couldn't rely on being able to make a living as an author. And actually what I latched onto was advertising. I'd be an advertising copywriter. That'd be interesting. And actually, in fairness, I think that is quite interesting. So, you know, I, tr I trundled along to school's careers advisor. And, you know, he's kind of slightly disappointedly puts away the big stacks of leaflets on accountancy, engineering, medicine, all the things he was ready for. And he sort of scratched his head and said, hmm, OK, advertising, advertising. Yeah, that's all psychology, in it? He didn't say in it. People didn't say it. <laughs> you should just read up on that then. So dutifully, a few days later, I, I caught the bus into Bolton, Central Library, you know, sort of a wonderland, and borrowed the Hamlin all-colour paperback of psychology. And I can look up on my bookshelf. I didn't steal it, but I subsequently <laughs> bought my own copy of it. And it's a brilliant book. And it sparked this interest in psychology. And eventually the advertising bit went away. I don't think it would have served my values well to have had a career in that. However, the spark was there. So uh, that's how I ended up going off and doing psychology. But between school and university, I ended up having a few months off. This was before gap years had been invented. So, you know, I couldn't go backpacking in Thailand or anything. I got a job from the job center they just had become just changed from labor exchanges and they said look if you're willing to do temporary work we can find stuff for you for just a couple of weeks at a time yeah 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 so i get this phone call from them and they said the first question was are you squeamish <laughs> oh crikey and the thing was i didn't know <laughs> but i figured that nobody had ever got a job by saying yes i'm squeamish <laughs> and, no no of course i'm not because we think this job is at the local operating theaters and it's cleaning stuff off surgeons' boots and washing the walls. Yeah, fair enough, it's money, isn't it? So, yeah, and, and indeed it was exactly those things. However, I ended up spending six, seven months doing this sort of theatre porter anaesthetics technician job. But part of my responsibility was accompanying the patients almost from their bed to the anaesthetics department and staying with them while the, the grown-ups were preparing the anaesthetics and all that kind of malarkey. And so, of course, you chat to them. You know, just to reassure people because it's a very nervous time for people. I got really interested in what they said and how they were viewing this dangerous or scary thing coming up and what they sometimes said about why they were having the surgery and the difference in how people approached it. And this could be a kind of retrospective story thing, but I genuinely think that that lodged something in me about the psychological aspects of very real, very tangible physical health conditions and treatments.
I, I think that d definitely did sort of form a little pattern somewhere in the back of my head, such that as I went forward and learned about psychology and then became a clinical psychologist, all the time there was this kind of interest. My ears were open. So that's kind of why subsequently when opportunities came up to work in physical health, I leapt at them mm. initially in HIV and AIDS. And then after a couple of years of that in palliative care, so sort of end of life care, a lot of that's cancer related, other conditions too. And that's basically been well over 25 years now. I've been doing that within the NHS and loving it, frankly, because I think it's a great arena for where psychological approaches can genuinely make a difference. I love the way, first of all, how you introduce the story and invite us to hold it lightly. And also that moment where you were, you were willing to accept a role that probably a lot of people wouldn't have accepted, <laughs> the squeamish role. Yeah. And you brought yeah. curiosity to that. Yes, curiosity and quite high anxiety. Yeah, as I put the phone down, I thought, what have I just agreed to? That was definitely present. But also, I learned something else really important in that. Because up to that point, I'd been at school. And as I said, you know, I wasn't brilliant at everything. I was pretty good at some things. And I kind of matured a bit during my sixth form. So by the end of school, I, academically, I was doing pretty well. And then I went on to university and did not brilliantly, brilliantly, but okay there. And of course, not messing up is important and putting in the work and taking it seriously and increasingly as you get older there are consequences of messing up but most of the consequences I'd experienced to date would have been consequences for myself and not tremendously serious ones frankly mm. and suddenly you find yourself in a job where the consequences of what you do have big impact on others and that was a kind of real eye-opener for me it was a setting that was kind of supervised. It wasn't foolhardy to put somebody like me in there because it was fairly mundane things I was doing. But equally, there were things I had to do and I had to do right. And I hadn't experienced the idea that others' well-being may be to some extent in my hands in some small way. And that's a kind of responsibility that I think all of us carry kind of throughout our career. But that was the first experience of it. It's quite interesting, that widening of the context to realise like, oh, yeah, this may appear on the surface to be quite a mundane yeah. job, but the importance of the repercussions. Absolutely. You know, it can, cleanliness and infection control are really incredibly important. We're all experiencing that a little bit at the moment. And in an operating environment, massively important. I haven't really thought about this for ages, but this is a real good example of how we learn things, but then the meaning of what we've learned changes with no extra experience later. And what I mean by that is there's something that only when I was at university, we started to learn about things like obsessive compulsive disorder. I can still remember sitting in a lecture and a little light bulb going on over my head thinking back to my time those months previously as a, as a theatre porter, because there's something that happens in an operating theatre that, you see, we're getting to squeamish territory, uh, when people are being operated on and there's quite a lot of blood around and you're using cloth to sort of like mop it up, and it's really important that you don't lose track of it because once it's blood coloured, it will be easy to lose track of. And we don't want those things being left inside of people. So one of the things you do in an operating theatre is you stop quite frequently and have, you have a swab count. So you have a big rack on the wall, and when everyone's been used and finished with, it's hung up on the wall. Everybody stops, hands off, and they say, okay, how many packs have we opened? Two packs, 40 swabs. There are 36 left in this pack. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You count those. Then you look at the rack. You count how many are on the rack. You count how many are in your hands. And unless the numbers tally, everything stops until you've resolved it. And you do that repeatedly throughout an operation to make sure you're not accidentally left something inside. Because it's important. And it's, a, it's good to have that discipline to be really fixed and rigid. But of course, later on, I start hearing about obsessive compulsive disorder and I realise something. In any other context, 
that will be an OCD behaviour. Stopping and ritualistically counting and all hell breaks loose if you don't get the right number at the end of it. And you have to redo it and redo it till you get it right. And so this was like an early insight, something I could only conceptualise later. And in fact, Psychological Flexibility Act has really helped with this. That it's not the form of the behaviour that's the issue. It's the context it's happening in and it's its function or its important consequences that shape whether this is an OCD thing that people might want help to get out of or a really great idea to stop people being genuinely harmed. Beautiful. That is such a great illustration of the importance of context. Love it. Thank you. Now, what was the motivation for the books, Ray? In the words of the great Paloma Faith, do you want the truth or something beautiful? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I could give you the beautiful answer. Uh, Okay, the beautiful answer is also true. You know, uh, I love books. I've always loved books. I'm a great consumer of books. It had always been in me the idea that one day there would be a book that was published at an ISBN number. I knew there's a copy in the Bodleian and a copy in, in the British Library. I just felt like, yeah, that would be great. And you know what? It is. So, yeah, there's that motivation there and, you know, the desire to give back and to impact a much wider number of people than one-to-one work ever will. Those are genuine things. And the truth, or thought passes for the truth, the triggering of the first book was I, I had been a job in a been in for a while. I'd become more and more senior. I had more and more of a sort of management role of other psychologists and service, not my current job. And I was struggling more and more with the extent of time I was spending on managerial stuff, on, oh, you know, turf wars about who gets what room, writing inordinately long policies that I know nobody's ever going to read. I had this fantasy of in one of these policies, writing a paragraph that said, if anybody reads this, phone this number and I will give you 20 quid out of my pocket because I knew I'd never lose a penny. So I was struggling. So I was sent on this management course and uh, a very helpful person had had laid out a table full of management type self-help books. All the popular titles were there. So I had a look at them. And of course, I'm in kind of full on cynicism mode by this point. And I'm sitting there no longer listening to what they're talking about, thinking, these are rubbish. I could write one of those. I could write one of those. I'm going to write one of those. You know, as I'm exercising cynicism to show how easy it is, what the hell? I'm going to do that. Maybe as a parting shot to this rubbish job. It wasn't a rubbish job, but that's how it felt that day. I'm sitting there doing the thing. Yeah, what would it be about? Well, you'd need a unique selling point, wouldn't you? Yeah, what's my unique selling point? Okay, so what if it is, what do we learn from end-of-life care, which is something I do that freaks a lot of people out. What can we learn from end-of-life care that would help you with business problems? Yeah, I bet that would sell, wouldn't it? So, you know, in all my cynicism, yeah, 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 I'm going to do that. And then, of course, you think, you know what? That's not actually a bad idea. As long as it's not just business problems, because there is stuff that we routinely do with people who are having to face some of the very worst things in their life, including the end of their life, and the impact on themselves and others around them, that actually also you can read across to other big, difficult, upcoming stuff. Divorce, redundancy, legal action, endings of things. Don't have to be death. But the stuff that we routinely work with with people around this, that you can read across. So what started off as an extremely cynical exercise in, can I do this? Can I make enough money on this to quit this job? I'm not enjoying it quite as much at the moment. And suddenly it becomes, not only do I want to do this, but I want to do it well. That's how the first book, Facing the Storm, started. It took me a few years to write. It's got very, very part time. 
and had to be completely rewritten halfway through because that's when I really got into acceptance and commitment therapy and really wanted to reflect some of that within the book. That's the story of the first book. And then when that was published, Routledge are great publishers and they were really helpful and really supportive. And my wife very recently pointed out, look, if you ever want to write another book, do it now. Well, you like them, they like you, you hit all your deadlines. Now is the moment to say to them, I think I've got another one. Don't hang on five years till everybody's changed. Fair point. So I said to them, I think I've got another one in me. Uh, And that was to be a more explicitly one about acceptance of commitment therapy for long-term physical health problems. Uh, And they said, yeah, great. Nine-month deadline. So I've been taking four or five years for the first one. (laughs) A nine-month deadline while still working four days a week for the NHS for the second one. So that second one was a lot quicker. Blimey. And that was living with the enemy. Mm. Are there any more in the pipeline? Not just yet. In a couple of years, there are things I'd love to write about. I do enjoy the process because, you know, I think one of my values is creativity and that's quite a good way for me to express it. You mentioned you had to rewrite bits of the first one when you discovered ACT. When did, when yeah. did you discover ACT, right? Well, it's funny, you know, it's told the story and that's kind of very much the story of what I've done career-wise. It's not the story of how I've done it. So for people like P-Supers who are interested in psychological approaches to stuff, it's also how. So I started off in my undergraduate time and the work I did immediately after that in a very kind of behavioral therapy kind of world. That was one of the two dominant models that was around then, a very psychodynamic model, quite behaviorist model. So working on exposure-based treatments for anxiety problems, increasing activity levels for depression type problems. Very happy with that. And I liked the theoretical underpinning a lot. And then just as I was training as a clinical psychologist, along comes cognitive therapy. I mean, it had been around for a while, but it really started to get a big impact in in the UK. Then that sort of moves into cognitive behavioural therapy. And so I trained in that and for many years was doing that, still use big elements of it, still would very strongly say many millions of people have been very significantly helped by absolutely classic, what we might now call second wave cognitive behavioural therapy. And... Like a lot of my colleagues, particularly working in physical health and especially stuff like end-of-life care, we were constantly having to work around and adapt. And, and I absolutely don't want to be setting up a straw man. I'm just trying to give a clear example here. So if I'm working with somebody who knows they will die soon, knows they will leave their young children without a mother, and has that image in their head a lot of the time, and it feels incredibly sad and feels really hard to interact even with their family because the pain wells up so much at the thought of, I'm not going to be here, I'm not going to see her grow up. Along comes intense pain and a reaction to that pain. Really distressing thoughts. And what if they're all literally true, absolutely accurate? Because they are for a lot of the people I see. We can't say the thought is irrational. We can't say, is there a better way of thinking about that? We can't say you shouldn't be feeling that feeling because any reasonable person who's actually in touch with what's going on will feel those strengths of feeling. Now, of course, there's loads of people working in a CBT model who are finding ways of working with that, working around it, and it's got better at that over the time, I think. But it's still a central issue. How do you deal with incredibly difficult thoughts and feelings that are just going to be there? They're not going to change. They're not going to go away. Because either you've got them for historical reasons or the current context says, yep, that's how it is. So then I was at a conference, I was talking at lunchtime. This is one of the things, virtual online conferences are great, but you don't end up just sitting next to the person at lunch and then saying what you're up to. And some Canadian psychologists working in a very deprived area, sort of ex-mining area, 
And they told me about this thing called mindfulness. And that was new to me. And they explained what this mindfulness thing was. And the fact that actually they were doing it, you know, like I say, with quite deprived people, you know, low socioeconomic status, not always particularly educated people. And although there might be an image that it belongs with certain kind of groups of people, they were getting good results for things like fear of cancer recurrence, which is one of the things I've worked with a lot. And then my ears prick up because that's a really tricky one because often the probability is very real and any of us might be genuinely very scared of that. But how do we stop ourselves from effectively living under the sword of Damocles, this thing hanging over us that shapes every healthy, positive day now by fear of some awful day in the future? That's a real dilemma. And this mindfulness thing of being able to notice those thoughts but actually focus more on the present and notice when the thoughts are coming in and be able to come back to the present sounded like a really smart idea. So I went off and did some training and learned to do mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So this is kind of my route in. So mindfulness-based cognitive therapy was my gateway drug <laughs> to psychological flexibility and act. And it is good stuff. You know, I love some really good people and some fantastic results, particularly with like recurrent depression. We hit a problem. We hit two problems, really. One of which is the format of a group-based format with sometimes we you know, a reasonable amount of demand on the person for practice didn't always fit quite so well with individuals who are physically very unwell, where you were working one-to-one a lot more than in groups. So that was tricky. And sometimes people would not unreasonably say, the present I'm coming back to is pretty rubbish as well. And some of those other themes that crop up. So the dominant themes you get in lots of physical health stuff, particularly cancer palliative care, but lots of it. So stuff like, I'm not the person I used to be. What's the point? I can't be, say, a teacher now. So what am I actually for? I can't be the parent I want to be. What am I for? Those are quite big questions. And sometimes they feel more kind of existential or even the realm of the spiritual care sometimes. And I hadn't really come across stuff that really helped with that. And then I got introduced to this ACT business. So a trusted colleague said, I know a book you need to read. And he got me that first edition he'd read of the, the ACT book, Hayes, Wilson and Strassel. And so he lent it me. And I sat down I thought, I trusted him, so I thought, this is going to be good. Read the first chapter, which is largely about relational frame theory and the language underpinning it. And I'm very respectful towards books, and I literally threw it across the room and said, this is garbage. Now, notice, I don't understand it becomes, this is garbage. Mm. And so when I said this to him, he said, no, give it another shot. And I did, and the lights came on. And the lights came on because of where the focus lies with psychological flexibility approaches, including ACT, of saying, well, let's have a look at what you want this life to be about. And let's be realistic about the way your context, your circumstances have changed your ability to live life that way. And acknowledge that really difficult thoughts and feelings will show up. And how can we unhook ourselves from stories of who we were and stories of futility or stories of of fear and find the strength sometimes to go through difficult stuff like chemotherapy unless we have an idea of what we're trying to move towards with it it can just end up feeling like punishment for the first time there was a psychological model that spoke to me about those issues and gave me ways of having a respectful curious conversation with people about it and that's why it grabbed me wow do you think conversations around death and palliative care have changed, in your experience, the way we approach it and the way we talk about it? I think they have. We've always got to be really careful about talking about whole populations and individuals. 
So there'll be some people who would see it exactly as, as they would have done for their lifetime and for generations before. I think there is more openness in some ways. There's the death cafe movement, which some of the P-supers may have heard of, is encouraging us to be openly talking about this. Accepting it's not all grimness and gloom. Uh, there's a brilliant book by Catherine Mannix called, I think, With the End in Mind. And I wish I could nail this quotation exactly. But it is something like <laughs> our life is bracketed by two bookends, birth and death. And we spend a lot of time talking and thinking about one of them and a lot of time trying not to think about the other one. But none of the stuff in between makes sense without understanding that that other bookend's there. It may well be worth looking up the actual quote because I'm sure it's far more elegant than, than my paraphrase. I will search it out and put it in the show notes. I think more people are talking about it. And, you know, we simultaneously still have a tricky balance between there are more things we can do to extend life now, all the time. New things, nothing offers immortality. And what we are as good as talking about is there are trade-offs. And sometimes there are quantity-quality trade-offs. So, you know, I could offer you a, a treatment that may actually have a you know, spectacular benefit and offer you many months, maybe a couple of extra years of life for some cancers that we couldn't treat in that way just a few years ago. And for some people, it's it's a relatively smooth path along there, and it's great. And for others, they may get that benefit, but they will get the benefit at the cost of quite a heavy side effect profile or, you know, spending a lot of time traveling backwards and forwards to hospitals. So there are big and important cost-benefit conversations to be had. And coming back to this kind of these contextual models of psychology, this is where this helps, you see, because we've got to understand that any behavior only makes sense and we can only make choices in context and the context of making even a choice about your personal health like do i want to try this new cancer therapy isn't just you because you will also have your family around you and they will have views and sometimes the views they feel they have to express aren't even necessarily the views they carry in themselves so towards the end of life we sometimes have situations kind of heartbreaking situations in a way where if you're lucky enough and privileged enough which i sometimes am in my job to be talking to all the parties because this is the joy of it. It's not formal therapy where it's exactly prescribed. You're sometimes just in there and trying to do your best. And what you discover is everybody's saying, we must do everything. We must do everything we possibly can for treatment to extend life. And when you talk to people separately, none of them believe that. Everybody is saying, I think this is causing more suffering than it's helping with. But everybody thinks they have to say the positive thing to support the other people in the family. And they end up in this trap where you can't communicate openly because everybody's out of their values and frankly out of their love is trying to protect everybody around them. And you end up making sometimes the worst choices out of that love. I think what you just described is absolutely tremendous. It's great to hear you talk about this. And this is the importance for me of your work. And I want to amplify that because I think from personal experience, I think we don't always have these conversations or we do things out of love or we feel perhaps guilty if we're thinking, well, is this the right thing? Am I am I wrong yeah. to be thinking this isn't fair? For you to talk about this and amplify that message is so important. But you do it in such a way that's very human and open and humble as well, which I think increases the chance of the amplification of the message. I think you've got to bring the human in this because otherwise you can't kind of get in there. You've got to be really clear. You're not feeling their suffering. But a compassionate response where you're trying to get a feel of it and you're trying to acknowledge it and, and, and see it and, and want to help is absolutely centrally important. 
the thing you just mentioned there is really interesting that guilt at thought and again this is one of the things i particularly like about this model other models are available and well done will be equally helpful however this particular model has this advantage the way it can talk about we don't get to choose what thoughts pop into our head and that doesn't mean therefore you won't feel guilty you probably will feel guilty so when somebody you love very much you have the thought i wish this was all over and then you react with horror to that thought the thought is there for a whole network of reasons you don't get to choose what pops into your head your horror at the fact that you thought it is derived from your love and your values of caring and compassion your guilt is very likely driven by the fact that you've noticed that that thought isn't compatible with how you'd like to see yourself. And so you get that little sting of internal punishment that, that we call guilt. And people can tie themselves in knots with this. Whereas, and you need to be in a close enough relationship, whether it's working or personal relationship with someone to do this. But if they're able to voice that and then instantly say, that's awful, isn't it? That's terrible. I can't believe I've said that. If we can help them say, okay let's have a look at what's going on here and actually you know what most of it comes from love most of it comes from love and until i worked in this model i felt embarrassed about using the word love happy to talk about anger and fear and things but we never used to talk about love and to say no i think love's behind this and let's see if we can find a way where it's not gonna knock you off course as much So, it's come to that moment, Ray. If you had a song that could announce your arrival in a room, whether it be a virtual room or a real room, not forever, but for the next few months, what would that be? Well, we had a couple of little nods towards this, I think, in our introduction. And I'm really ashamed to say, I have thought about this. I mean, long before I got involved in all of this. It's one of the things, what would mine be? I guess I'm thinking of like if some big fight or, or a darts match and you're on the big adrenaline pumping da, 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 thing. And for me, of course, there could only be one. And, uh, and, and it is the great uh, theme to Stingray. Starts with a drum. Dum, 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 dum. And there's these brilliant bits of dialogue that kind of going out over a, uh, of a tannoy. Standby for action. And anything can happen in the next half hour. Um, build you up to Stingray, Stingray. So, you know, that's what you'd want, isn't it? But you see, context and function. That's what I would want in mm. that setting, with the function of building up the adrenaline and, and getting you ready for action. But the problem with that is it doesn't really lend itself to much textual analysis, does it? <laughs> Standby for action, anything can happen in the next half hour, Stingray, Stingray, Stingray. Mm. I mean, there's not Insightful. a lot because I've listened to the other ones. I listened to Louise. What a great choice she had. So I thought, no, I've got to do better than that, Frank. <laughs> and so I had to cast around. And, and actually, I, I think I would with this. And, and there's been another context in which I've kind of slightly used an adaptive version of this in this way. And it's Reasons to be Cheerful, part three, by Enduring the Blockheads. Hearts back to a kind of a golden age of music. Mm. You know, what's the golden age of music? It's when you're somewhere between 13 and 19. Whenever you are that age, that's the golden age of music. So this kind of energy and, and sort of pumping new wave, post-punk, people may well be familiar with it, but it's it's a modern version of what in Victorian times would be called a patter song, which is very fast, and there's a word on each accent. 
so people know uh, Gilbert Sullivan. I am the very model of a modern major general. So this is very much like that. He got a hell of a pace mm. in this. But it's just this whole list of apparently random things to feel cheerful about. Because I didn't get kind of lost, but you know, seeing Piccadilly, Fanny Smith and Willie, being rather silly, Tori Jones, bit of grin and bear it, bit of come and share it, you're welcome, we can spare it, yellow socks. It's just this apparently random list of things that can bring cheerfulness, and some of them are really big, curing smallpox shows up in there, but also saying okie dokie shows up. And, and there's a couple of reasons I think it really appeals to me. One of which is its playfulness. There's a real pleasure. These Some of these things are there just because of how they sound in the mouth. Another kind of principle is that you find the big stuff inside the small stuff. I mean, he's not always said in act, but it's kind of there. You find the big stuff inside the small stuff. So reasons to be cheerful, reasons to find today a good day and find this bit of good in today could be sitting on the potty. <laughs> could be being in my nuddy. Could be Harpo, Groucho, Chico. So we find those things, they're out there, as well as in the big things like curing smallpox. Sometimes, when people are new to psychological flexibility models and act, there can be an assumption that because we put so much emphasis on making room for and allowing unwanted things, like fear and sadness and anger, to be present and not defeat and annihilate and get rid of them, there's a feeling sometimes that there's a kind of doer uh, sort of stoic enjoyment of misery about it. We mustn't be about fun. Well, we must be about fun, but not all about fun. So we need to find the cheerfulness alongside the anxiety and the fear. So finding cheerfulness actually matters as much as making room for sadness and fear. So long as all of our behaviour isn't then driven towards getting more and more and more and more of that and not making room for the other stuff. Absolutely love it. I love a good list song anyway, but I think it's one of the finest of the genre. Superb musicians, the tightest band. It might be true of one or two of the punk acts, but these punk and post-punk acts were brilliant musicians. And, and of course, for anybody who doesn't know Injury and his story, it's well worth looking into because he was an absolutely remarkable human being and well worth reading up about or watching the film Sex and Trust and Rock and Roll. Agreed. All these links and more will be in the show notes. Excellent. Okie dokie, peacekeepers, that's it, in the bag. I'd like to thank Ray so much for joining me. And he's back for round two next week. What a treat for your log holes. Next week, we'll talk more about his workshop at the ACBS UK and Republic of Ireland conference in November. If you like this episode of the podcast, could I invite you to share it with one other person? I'm really keen to spread the behavioural science and skills with more people. Of course, a subscription, rating or review are also very much appreciated. The show notes are at rossmackintosh.co.uk and this includes links to a few different platforms. I love to hear from you, P-Supers, and I don't hear from you half as much as I love. So you can get in touch at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we are at peoplesouppod. On Instagram, at people.soup. And on Facebook, we are at peoplesouppod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic and to you for listening. Look after yourselves, peace supers, and bye for now.
my my headphones seem to have collapsed, so I'll just fix them. It may have collapsed largely because of what's happened to your hair during oh, lockdown. Daggy, you're telling me, man. <laughs> 